come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night. Let's stand. The house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord, the God of Zion, bless you, maker of heaven and earth. Let's sing.
Oh
I'm sure you do. Oh. 
today. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let us go up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be crucified. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And with blind Bartimaeus, let us cry for mercy, that we may know him and follow him. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who shall climb the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The clean of hands and the pure of heart. Whose soul is not set on vain things. Who has not sworn deceitful words. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Taking whatever posture you'd like, let us have a moment of silent repentance to our Lord. Lord, help me, for our need is great for you. Lord, have mercy on me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. O let your ears be attentive to the sound of my pleadings. Help us, O God, our Savior, for the sake of the glory of your name, free us and forgive us our sins. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand, but with you is found forgiveness, that you may be revered. For we are dust, and to dust we shall return. But the Lord's compassion is on those who fear him. I long for you, O Lord. My soul longs for his word. My soul awaits the Lord more than watchmen for daybreak. For he knows of what we are made. He remembers that we are dust. More than watchmen for daybreak, let Israel hope for the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. In him is plentiful redemption. From the dust he lifts up the lowly. From the ash heap he raises the poor. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. O heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who are in all places and fill all things, treasury of good, giver of life, come abide in us. Cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. Amen. Let us stand, for it is time for the Lord to act. Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Amen. O gladsome light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven. O Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, now as we come to the setting of the sun, and our eyes behold the vesper light, we sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices. O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified through all the worlds. O Lord and Master of my life, do not give to me the spirit of laziness, faint-heartedness, lust for power, and idle talk. O God, cleanse me a sinner. But give to me, your servant, the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. O God, cleanse me, a sinner. O Lord and King, grant me to see my own faults and not to judge my brother. For blessed are you unto ages of ages. O God, cleanse me, a sinner. Psalm 38, a psalm of repentance. It's a memorial of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Reprove me not in your rage. For your arrows have sunk deep in me. Your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My guilt towers higher than my head. It is a weight too heavy to bear. My wounds are foul and festering. The result of my own folly. I am bowed and brought to my knees. I go mourning all the day long. All my frame is burning with fever. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am spent and utterly crushed. I cry aloud in anguish of heart. O Lord, all my longing lies before you. My groans are not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength is spent. The very light has gone from my eyes. Friends and companions stand aloof from my illness. Those closest to me stand afar off. Those who plot against my life lay snares. Those who seek my ruin speak of harm. Planning treachery all the day long. But I, like someone mute, do not open my mouth. I am like one who hears nothing. In whose mouth is no defense. But in you, O Lord, I hope. It is you, Lord, my God, who will answer. I pray, 
Let them not gloat over me. Exalt if my foot should slip. For I am on the point of falling. And my pain is always with me. I confess that I am guilty. And I am grieved because of my sin. My enemies live on and grow strong. And many hate me without cause. They repay me evil for good. And attack me for seeking what is good. Forsake me not, O Lord. My God, be not far from me. Make haste and come to my help. My Lord and my salvation. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Though I do not deserve the bread from your table, I cry with the faith of the Canaanite mother's persistence. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, help me. Cast me not away, nor deny me your mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Since we are powerless to help ourselves, guard us, body and soul, from all the assaults of the evil one. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 15. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Mm -hmm. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Mm -hmm. Be it done for you as you desire. Mm -hmm. And her daughter was healed Mm -hmm. instantly. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Brothers and sisters, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Christ is among us. Let us greet one another, grab tea, use the restroom, meet someone you haven't met. We'll be in Psalm 38 in a moment. Holy God, holy, mighty, holy, immortal, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy, mighty, holy, immortal, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy, mighty, holy, immortal, have mercy on us. Help us, Lord. Our need is so great. Help us because we don't always see how great our need is. We're not always aware of how much we walk on the edge of falling. We're not aware of how evil the foe is and how desperately he wants to make us fall. We just amuse ourselves with silly entertainment. We don't devote our hearts to being formed in your likeness the way that we could. And oh Lord, for those that are discouraged, we pray that they would know you're not angry with us. But for those who are complacent, I pray that we would experience something of your your desire for us. Such desire that when we resist, it can feel like anger. It can feel like something terribly strong and we don't know what to do with. God, we recognize that you are something that we cannot domesticate, we cannot tame, we cannot confine or or define with silly words. But your love is immense, giving birth to all things, including us, and calling us out of darkness and into light, out of nothingness and into salvation. And God, sometimes we need to feel your power at work among us, whether it hurts or comforts, whether it terrifies or delights. We need to know you, and we need to walk in your fellowship. We want communion with you. Enrich us, Lord, with a feast that we would never want to go anywhere else. And so, God, for the brokenhearted, whether through tragedy or through sin, we ask, Lord, that as we walk through this valley of weeping, the valley of Baca, on our way to your holy temple, that you would sustain us in these times of sadness, in this world of despair. God, that as we are wounded and as we fall and as we hurt and as we suffer and as we're frustrated and we know the pains of this life, that we would know your healing, that we would know your salvation, that your mercy would be applied to our wounds as the good Samaritan applied the wine and the oil to the traveler's wounds. Come, great physician, 
and mend what is broken. Let those in lament and mourning rejoice and laugh, and let those rejoice and laugh at the fatness of this life learn what it is to be humble. We pray this because we need you, Christ, and we want our unification with you to be perfect and complete. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We're in Psalm 38 tonight. Psalm 38, as we're going through six psalms as lessons for praying the psalms. These are six traditional psalms that um, sort of epitomize the Christian life, the ups and the downs thereof, and everything in between. They hit the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. Um, And if you remember, the word psalm refers literally in this word to pluck something. What we want the Psalms to do is not just to be things that we have to somehow figure out how to pray. Um, That's not at all the goal. It's to allow the Psalms to be the Psalms in our hearts, to allow the songs of God to be the songs in our hearts, the thoughts of God to be the thoughts in our hearts. And so the Psalms become that which plucks the heartstrings of our lives. We will sing the melody of that which we pray. We can become heaven's song on earth as we allow the psalms to pluck the strings of our heart rather than the many other vices and devices, literal devices too, of the world that tend to grab a lot of our heartstrings. That's what we're looking at through this um, these six weeks of Lent. So tonight, the Psalm 38, pierced by sin. We're pierced by sin. So here's my warning to you. If you want to walk the Christian life with Christ, you will be wounded. You will be wounded. The battle is real. Those who fight with Christ against the enemy will be wounded. You're not in a Disney movie. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you're not in a rubber room. That has other implications, doesn't it? I was thinking something safe, you know, something cushioned. You're not wrapped in bubble wrap. That's not what Christ does with us. That would leave us in a, exactly as you are. Wrap me in bubble wrap. Let nothing happen to me, Lord. Well, God is like, I love you too much to leave you as puny little corrupt Brandon McCulloch. I want to make you into a son of God. So to do that, he takes us into the battle. That was Psalm 3. That was last week, warfare and prayer. That Psalm 3 teaches us we awake every single day in the heat of battle. One of the reasons we pray is because this is our counterattack against the enemy who is ever present and attacking. The Psalms become a weapon in the Christian's heart. So we awake in war, which means it's only a matter of time until you get wounded in war. It's not because God is not strong enough to protect you. It's that we are still learning how to walk with him and we misstep often. And he will permit the wounding so that we will learn and have opportunity to repent and to turn back to him. Because every time that we stray and we turn back, we are being healed from our wounds. And every time we turn to him and he's healing us, we're not just being brought back to where we once were. He's healing us to be what he wants us to become. So this is the Christian life. We go into war, we get wounded, but our healer is there for us. 
We need when we get wounded, because you will. I don't know if you heard that yet. You will. When we need, when we get wounded, we need immediate first aid. Immediate first aid. If we don't take care of even the little scrapes and bruises or the bigger injuries, if we don't take care of these, they fester, they stink, they get infected. We need immediate first aid. So Psalm 38 teaches us when we're wounded to go straight and immediately to the healer, the one who gives mercy as a balm. So here's what John of the Ladder said. I was actually speaking with somebody about him earlier. That's ironic. Uh, He said, while an injury is still new and warm, it is not hard to heal. But aged and ignored and festering ones are difficult to cure. However, with God, all things are possible. So when the enemy wounds us, he will want to discourage you. I knew I would do it. I'm no good at this. I'm going to live the common denominator Christian life. Just kind of go to church, read my Bible whenever I get a free moment, and that's enough. He wants to discourage you. You were in the front of battle with Christ, and you got wounded, and the enemy wants you to think, well, that's it. I'm not made out for this. No, what John is saying there is he's saying, the fr- once you're wounded, go straight for healing because that's easy to heal. Christ will now teach us and make us stronger, right? Because scars are tougher. Broken bones are stronger, they say. So go to the healer and let's get back in the battle. So Psalm 38 is a prayer of repentance. Uh, I used to just kind of say a psalm of confession, And it is that, of course, because he does say, I confess I am guilty and I'm sorry for my sins. That's a confession. But I think we're incomplete if all we say is confess your sins. Because if we just say, God, I did this. Okay, cool. Repentance is about turning. It's about going back the other way that we strayed from. A confession is just the beginning points. Recognizing I turned away. Repentance is going back. So I like to prefer to call this a psalm of repentance. I I strayed, I got wounded, I'm coming back for healing. This is what Psalm 38 is about. Why is it a prayer of repentance? Why is it a prayer? It's a prayer of pain and repentance. Why? Because God will allow us to be wounded in the battle. He'll allow us to be pierced by sin so that we will desire to be pierced by prayer. He He will allow us to be pierced by sin so that we will desire to be pierced by prayer. Okay, we can stray, yeah? We can make foolish choices. And, and sometimes sin hurts. It has its consequences. Well, God, why didn't you just protect me? You knew I was foolish. Like, you could have shielded me from that pain. He will allow the enemy to wound us, not kill us, wound us. Because it's only in the wounding that we realize that sin is death. Mm-hmm. And that we will come back to him. So when we, when we suffer in this life, did you know that that's actually God's gift to us? So that we would repent. Why were Adam and Eve banished from the tree of life? So that they would repent. Why do humans go through pain? So that they will repent. Why do we die? So that we will repent. If life was just cruise control and no problems ever happened, do you think we would ever seek the Garden of Eden? It would be too much work. Why bother? Everything's fine. These are gifts to repent. 
so that we will be pierced by prayer instead of pierced by sin. Now, pierced by prayer sounds weird. We'll get into that. So let's go into Psalm 38. We prayed it um, just a moment ago, but why don't we hear it afresh? I'm reading from the Abbey Psalter. You can follow along in your ESV, or if you've got the email, you've got it right there on your phone. So, um, a Psalm of David for a memorial. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Reprove me not in your rage. For your arrows have sunk deep in me. Your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My guilt towers higher than my head. It is a weight too heavy to bear. My wounds are foul and festering, the result of my own folly. I am bowed and brought to my knees. I go mourning all the day long. All my frame is burning with fever. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am spent and utterly crushed. I cry aloud in anguish of heart. Oh, Lord, all my longing lies before you. My groans are not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength is spent. The very light has gone from my eyes. Friends and companions stand aloof from my illness. Those closest to me stand afar off. Those who plot against my life lay snares. Those who seek my ruin speak of harm, planning treachery all the day long. But I, like someone deaf, do not hear. Like someone mute, I do not open my mouth. I am like one who hears nothing, in whose mouth is no defense. But in you, O Lord, I hope. It is you, Lord my God, who will answer. I pray, let them not gloat over me, exult if my foot should slip. For I am on the point of falling, and my pain is always with me. I confess that I am guilty, and I am grieved because of my sin. My enemies live on and grow strong, and many hate me without cause. They repay me evil for good and attack me for seeking what is good. Oh, forsake me not, O Lord. My God, be not far from me. Make haste and come to my help, my Lord and my salvation. What does Psalm 38 teach us about God? We'll look at that. What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about us? And what does it teach us about prayer? Now, if you missed the first message, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast. There we cover some perspectives that are necessary for praying the Psalms. Um, because sometimes they're hard if you just think I'm supposed to just come to these and literally pray them in. That can be kind of rough. Um, so there's some perspectives we taught there. We'll touch on one of those perspectives again tonight because it's very applicational to how we pray Psalm 38. Um, but first, how do the Psalms, what do the Psalms teach us about God? What do they teach us about the one we are praying to? So three, three lessons we'll pull from this about God. The first, God permits suffering as a call to repentance. God permits suffering as a call to repentance. This largely plays on the first eight verses where you see just a, he's just waxing eloquent about his pain and his suffering. And he's not playing innocent victim here. He is saying, I have done this to myself. 
Now, the Psalms have the innocent victim. In fact, um, the the four Psalms before 38, so what is that? 37, 36, 35, 34. Those four are about the innocent sufferer. And we saw last week that that is Christ in the Psalms. He is the suffering servant. But 38, 39, 40, and 41, the last four Psalms of book one of the Psalms are about the sinful sufferer. And so this is the first of those. Uh, He knows he's in the wrong. And notice that we see in verse two, your arrows have sunk deep in me. Your hand has come down upon me. So we were in battle in Psalm three. The foes are surrounding us. How many are my foes, O Lord? Many are rising up against me. But you, O Lord, are my shield, right? My glory, the lifter of my head. We have defense in him. The arrows will not strike us when we're in him. But when we stray and wander, well, you're now in firing range of the enemy. And the archers take aim and they wound us and they hit us. Ah, but, you say, why does the psalm say your arrows have sunk deep in me? Has God literally taken fire at us? No. What we should see here is that God has permitted the arrows to hit us so that in our suffering we learn to repent. This is why the psalmist begins with this idea of God's anger. It isn't that God is literally up there going, we know this because of Christ. It's not that God's up there going, well, I just had it with you. You deserve it. Take that and come back to me when you're ready. That's not the attitude here. The psalmist feels what he experiences, what feels like God's anger, because what God's doing is he's allowing the suffering to draw him to repentance. Um, the consequences of sin, that is the anger of God. The consequences of sin, the anger of God. Read Romans 1. The wrath of God has been made manifest, and then it talks about what humans are doing. What they are doing is the wrath of God. Their, their list of sins and how they treat one another is the wrath of God. Sin teaches us to repent. That's why sin brings suffering. Um, Charles Spurgeon, who puts things so eloquently, he put it like this. He says, by the arrows sticking in him, he, David, means both bodily and spiritual griefs. God's law applied by the spirit to the conviction of the soul of sin wounds deeply and rankles long. See what he's implying there? The pain of the arrows piercing him. He's saying that that pain is the pain of conviction. The conviction wounds deeply and rankles long. I think that means it just lasts a long time. Um, It is an arrow not lightly to be brushed out by careless mirthlessness or to be extracted by the flattering hand of self-righteousness. Boom, pierced by conviction. Oh, no, God. (laughs) I've been a good boy. Or I'm going to pray my way out of this. Or I'm going to tithe extra. All you're doing is breaking those arrows off, but the heads are still in there. Hmm. Right? The extraction of these, it comes, it's, 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 it's repentance. It's coming to our healer and letting him now pull these out and putting his salve on the wounds. So God permits suffering as a call to repentance. Uh, number two, God is not indifferent to our sufferings, but desires our longing. He's not indifferent to our sufferings. And like, I mean, let's let them figure it out as they suffer. No, he is there wounded with us. 
oh, I hate that John has to go through this, but I desire his desire for me. So that's what the psalmist comes to after his litany of foul and festering wounds. He comes in verse 9. O Lord, all my longing lies before you. That's a terrifying prospect. My longing for terrible garbage and my longing for him. All of it lies before him. My groans are not hidden from you. This is what God allows the suffering of sin to do, is bring us to this point where it's like, Lord, here's all my longing. Order it. Some of it's disordered. Hear my groans. So God is not indifferent, but he desires our longing. And third, only God delivers from sin. Only God delivers from sin. So we sin, and there are consequences. You're not going to be delivered from that by being better or being good. It's a good thing to do, but that's not going to heal the sin. That's not going to deliver you. We must go to God, which means we must be open with our longings before him. We must let him touch the wounds and pull the arrows out. That's the only way to be delivered. So we see the psalmist recognizing this as he prays. Verse 15, but in you, O Lord, I hope It is you, Lord my God, who will answer. I pray, let them not gloat over me if my foot should slip, and exalt if my foot should slip. For I am on the point of falling, and my pain is always with me. So because of this, because they're waiting to gloat over me if I slip again, because I'm on the point of falling, and they're waiting to eat me up when I do, Lord, only you is my hope, only you will answer. You are the one. And then the end, the last two verses, 21 to 22, these are the words of repentance right here. Forsake me not, O Lord. My God, be not far from me. Make haste and come to my help, my Lord and my salvation. Those are words of desperation. You don't get more desperate language than that. Like there is no other way than if you you don't come and help me now, I am in a bad spot. This is where we recognize that only God delivers from sin. So that's what Psalm 38 teaches us about God. He's a loving father, too loving to bubble wrap us. Now, what do we learn about ourselves in this psalm? Um, Frankly, when you look at this psalm, we learn, one, we have a lot of emotions. (laughs) And two, we learn, these are not the actual points, I'm just kind of generalizing here. But what we also see is that we're susceptible to sin. That's the number one thing we learn about ourselves here. Um, So I want to mainly focus on that, sin and repentance. We see both. Sin kills us. That's number one. We learn sin kills us. Second, we learn that repentance heals us. Sin kills us. Repentance heals us. The psalm's very graphic about how sin kills us. I want to walk us through some of the the imagery here. Um, But here's why sin kills us. Because sin, as the wages of death, sin is the embodiment of death in our lives. Sin is the embodiment of death in our lives. Death exists in the world. Well, how does it get into our lives? It gets into our lives through sin. And sin can manifest itself in ugly ways because sin is in a... In a manner of speaking, it's the incarnation of death. 
That's, ter- that's really creepy when you think about it. As Mary says yes to God, she conceives and in the incarnation of Christ happens in humanity. But as we say yes to sin, we also conceive and death is incarnated in humanity. These are the paths before us. Here's how Patrick Henry Redon put it. He said, whether physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, or all of those together, what we suffer in this life are the incursions of death. And death is simply sin becoming incarnate and dwelling among us. Sin is simply death becoming incarnate and dwelling among us. Here's how it works in Psalm 38. Sin wounds us. Verse 2. We've gone over this a few times already. Your arrows have sunk deep in me. (coughs) Uh, Next, we see that sin rots us. It rots us. In verse 3, there is no soundness in my flesh or as... um, one translation puts it, there is no wholeness in my flesh. So there's like, there's, there's this rotting, right? The inside is corroding. It's becoming hollowed out, emptied, drained. Um, there is no health in my bones, the next line. Or uh, another translation, there's no peace in my bones. So think of shalom is a Hebrew word for completeness. We usually translate peace wholeness, soundness. It's, it's Edenic. Shalom. There is no shalom in my bones. I am deeply rotting away. Um, that's how deep it goes. Verse five, my wounds are foul and festering. That's more rot. It's corruption. Sin sets in, but it doesn't just sit there idly. Sin is active. It's working on us and it's furthering the destruction. So, um, Festering can also be translated stinks. My wounds stink. I'm sorry, foul is stink. My wounds stink and are festering. Um, so sin wounds, sin rots, sin distorts. In verse 6, I am bowed, or um, the altar translation says twisted. I am twisted. I am bowed and brought to my knees, or I am twisted and humiliated. Sin just has this way of contorting and and wrecking things. Uh, I think it's Lewis who says that sin is simply the twisting of good things. You are a good thing. Sin will really mess that up. Sin depresses. It not only distorts, but it depresses. Continuing in verse 6. I am bowed and brought to my knees. I go mourning... All the day long. Oh, so I am brought to my knees. Um, the altar translation also puts that one. Brought to my knees is gloomy. So brought to my knees could be thought of as like, ah, I'm just brought to humility. Or it's I'm brought to my knees because I can't even stand up. I can't even look up. Like I am just in a depressed, gloomy state. I am um, gloomy. Um, also verse 8. I am spent and utterly crushed. Uh, the altar translation also puts spent as I am numb and crushed. Have you, have you been spiritually depressed because of sin? You get, you don't care anymore. Yeah, God forgives you. Eh, I don't care. 
Like you can be in a place where you're just cradled in sin's arms and you're just rocked into this numbless, indifferent state. Um, sin makes us anxious. Verse 10, continuing verse 10, I cry, uh, or no, we didn't, did we go to verse 10? Oh, there it is. Verse 10. Uh, my heart throbs. My strength is spent. Uh, my heart throbs can also be translated as my heart spins around. Or in the Septuagint, it's my sin, or my, my heart is troubled. So my heart spins, it throbs, it's troubled. The idea is like, it's in a world, like when we get anxious and things can't settle down. That's where his heart is. Sin can make us anxious about all kinds of things. Um, and it, it's it, how Paul says in Philippians 4, um, in, uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make a request being known to God, and the peace of God will come upon you. Uh, anxiousness is the opposite of, of prayer. Prayer brings us to peace, but sin brings us to anxiousness. We see that in this psalmist. And then in verse 10, we also see that sin weakens us. My strength is spent. The very light has gone from my eyes. So that could refer to like your eyes dimming, like you can't see well. But given the context of his heart throbbing and his strength being spent, it can also mean that you're losing your physical energy. That's a way that the Psalms will often say it. Uh, David, when he eats honey, or Jonathan it was, Dave, Jonathan eats honey when the Israel armies like march to exhaustion. Jonathan eats the honey and it says that his eyes brightened. He was refreshed. He was given energy. So here we see more of this, this weakening that sin brings us. You can get in apathy. Not only depressed, but apathetic. Sin makes us just want to just simply find ease and comfort. And then, we probably plot so many more nuances, but just another big theme, the last one, that sin isolates us to attack us. Sin isolates us to attack us. If you look at verse 11, friends and companions stand aloof from my illness. Those closest to me stand afar off. Have you ever noticed that, how your sin can actually distance you from people? Either they don't like who you are, or your sin is making you not want to be in the company of others. Because one of the things sin wants to do is to get you away from the herd so that it can now prey upon you. Right? There's the strength in numbers. There's the strength in fellowship. But once you're isolated, sin can now work on you. And that's how I see the connection between verse 11 and verse 12. How you see that the distance he has from people, and then you read verse 12. Those who plot against my life lay snares. Those who seek my ruin speak of harm, planning treachery all the day long. Because I am not in fellowship, sin has a lot of plans to conspire against me. Because I'm an easy target. This is how sin kills us. It does it in a myriad of ways. So this is what we learn about ourselves. Sin kills us. That's why we want to take sin seriously. It's not because we don't want to tick God off. It's not because we want to be righteous and holy so we get rewards and blessing from him. It's because sin kills us and God wants us to walk in his life. It's as simple as that. So that leads us to number two. Repentance heals us. Repentance heals us. So if sin turns us away from God, repentance returns us to God. It's very simple. God has not made this complicated. 
It's a matter of the heart turning back to him. We like to think that sin separates us from God. And the way we usually, I, I grew up hearing that all the time. My third grade teacher. Lying's a sin and sin separates us from God. <laughs> um, yes, it does. But what I grew up with, the image I got from that was that God's like, well, you sinned. So hmm. <laughs> ask for forgiveness. <laughs> that's how I imagined it. But that's not how it works. Sin turns me away from God. Sin is separating me from God. Not because God turns, because I'm the one who turned. I'm the one who turned. I went that way. So repentance is about me coming back to this face-to-face communion with God. The God who never turned away, but was there saying, okay, I'm here. And when your sin hurts enough, maybe you'll come back. And that's what we do in repentance. So... That's what repentance is doing. Um, the title of this psalm, we don't often talk too much about titles. We forget that they're actually inspired. And in ancient, um, some, some psalms, psalters actually make the title verse 1 in some psalters. I don't know if you know that. Like in your Bible, like our common, you know, um, conventional Bibles here, uh, you have the title, the ESV says, A Psalm of David for the Memorial Offering. That's not a verse number. Then we have verse 1, O Lord. But some Psalters actually make that first part verse 1, and then verse 1 is verse 2. So it actually kind of makes it confusing when you compare them a little bit. Um, But that's what's going on here is that we have a memorial offering. Or in this Psalter, it simply says a memorial. What does this mean? Um, Memorial, it means to call to mind or to re... We can say remember, but that's not quite the idea. Um, it's to remind us or remember, but what remember and remind mean at the root basis is to remind. It's to put your mind back together or to remember is to put your members back together. Things get kind of scattered and severed. We need to bring them back. This is what sin does is it splices and dices us and it kills us and it hurts us. This is a memorial because, uh, this Psalm is about repentance, about coming back. So the memorial can either be calling God's attention to our need God, remember me, or take mind of me and my need, or it's us calling our minds to our sin so that we repent. And repent literally means to change one's mind. Metanoia, noia coming from the noose. It's to change our mind. Um, so it's, it's turning the mind back to God. It's, it's doing one or the other. It's so... Uh, what we see, the title of the psalm says, this is what it's about. It's about coming back, whether calling God to notice and help us and heal us or us coming back to him and saying, help us and heal us. Um, and then we see in verse 18, I confess that I am guilty and I am grieved because of my sin. There it is. He's been turning to God through this prayer. But here it's like, I'm not blaming you for this. I'm not blaming you. I did this. I confess I'm guilty. And I am, I'm grieved because of my sin. That's repentance. When you recognize that your sin is not the life you want. Because you guys remember, have you ever heard the, the famous Augustine prayer? One of his infamous prayers. God, give me chastity, just not yet. Right? That's, that's not repentance. I know I shouldn't, but I'm kind of not wanting to stop at the same time. This psalmist is sick of it. And that's why God will graciously allow the arrows of sin to sink deep into us. Sometimes we have to be fed up before we're willing to repent. That's about how stubborn we are. 
Psalm 32 has a great line about our stubbornness. Be not like the mule that needs bit and bridle and little treats to help it come toward me. The psalmist says, like, don't be like that. But we are like that. (laughs) So um, we have that verse. And then, of course, we already did verse 21 and 22. But how much more of repentance is that? I turned there, but now I'm turning here. Forsake me not, my Lord. Be not far. Come quickly to my help. So sin kills us, repentance heals us. That's what we learn about ourselves. Now, finally, what do we learn about prayer from this prayer? What does Psalm 38 teach us about prayer? Psalm 38 teaches us that prayer pierces us. Sin pierces us. We, we went through that experience, but prayer pierces us too. The Psalms pierce the heart in a good way. Sin pierces us to kill us, but the Psalms can pierce us with the remedy, with the healing, with the mercy that we need. When prayed, the Psalms pierce us with feeling. Or maybe I should say it like this. The Psalms, when prayed with feeling, pierce us. Okay, so... Sometimes it'd be like, how do I, how do I pray a written prayer? And you're just like going through these words, like, these are not my words. And I don't know what to do with that. And I don't know what that means. And you just feel so detached. And what you do is you pray the Psalms with feeling. If these are just words or just about David or just, if you don't, if the heart isn't moved by what the Psalms are saying, then the heart is not praying in the Psalms. The Psalms move the heart. The Psalms come and take our heartstrings and pluck them. They pull them. They move us. They start to play a melody and a harmony and they compose God's music within us. That's what we do is we open our hearts to the Psalms and we let them mold and manipulate and shape and pluck and twang and strum and keyboard, whatever you call that, pressing the hammers of the heart. Psalm 38 is punctuated with feeling, isn't it? I mean, do we have to go back over it or just look at the first eight verses? There is so much emotion and, and, and raw description here. And what that does is it reminds us of one of the fir- one of the three perspectives we talked about the Psalms last week. One was that when we pray the Psalms, we must pray them as dynamic, not as static. Meaning... We can often see the Psalms as just, this is, this is them, and I have to do something with this Psalm. I have to make it come to life in prayer somehow. So I have to imagine my own life, or I have to like insert my own thoughts here. No, that's looking at the Psalm as static. The Psalm is dynamic. It's part of the living and breathing double-edged sword word of God. Christ is walking in the Psalms. He's here and present. We're praying in and with and through Christ in the Psalms. They're dynamic. We don't pull them into our lives. They pull us into their lives. Now that does mean, yes, sometimes my circumstances and the things I'm going through get pulled into the Psalm too. But the point is perspective here. It's not that I have to infuse the psalm with life. The psalm wants to infuse me with life. It wants to pull my heartstrings. It wants to do the work within me. That's what it means to pray a psalm dynamically. So entering the prayers of the psalms like that, entering their prayer, will pierce us with feeling. You will find that they start to do things to us. 
They pierce us with feeling. Here's how Theo Fan, the only writer I've ever read who addresses how to pray written prayers. Everyone talks about how to pray in various ways. I've never seen anyone say, this is how you pray written prayers, at least in a way that makes sense. This makes sense. So what are the Psalms? They're written prayers. We have 150 written prayers. Like you could be praying for hours on end. So never say, I don't know how to pray longer. <laughs> but Theophan's going to guide us. He was that, Tyler might know, 19th century, 18th century, 18th century Russian Christian. He wrote on this great homily he gave, um, worth your read. Not every act of prayer is prayer. Just because you think you're praying, you call it prayer, doesn't actually mean that prayer is happening. Right? Like common sense, but profound at the same time. Not every act of prayer is prayer. Reading prayers, like the Psalms, either by heart or from a book, or hearing someone else read them, is not yet prayer. But only a tool or a method for obtaining and awakening prayer. So the Psalms, just reading them is not prayer. It's, it's that they start to awaken prayer within us. It's a method to get to prayer. Um, so he's going to continue. Prayer itself is the piercing of our hearts by pious feelings towards God. One feeling after another. The piercing of our hearts with pious feelings toward God. So when you pray, this is a great example of this, Psalm 38. When you pray this, your heart ought to be pierced with what the psalm is describing. Feel the arrows striking. Feel the wounds that are festering from your own sin. You, you, you get into, this is what we mean by dynamic, you, we get pulled into the psalm. And now we, our hearts must be plucked with feeling in these ways. When it's talking about yearning and longing for God, feel yearning and longing for God. Don't just cognitively say, that's a nice ideal. When you're desperately crying, verses 21 to 22, forsake me not. Feel the despair if God did not answer that prayer. This is what it means to be pierced by one feeling after another for God. So he he continues, all our effort should be directed so that during our prayers, these feelings and feelings like them should fill our souls so that the heart would not be empty when the lips are reading the prayers. So as you are praying those prayers, There's so much going on in here as you're reading. I should say praying, but just for the sake of differentiation here, as you're saying those words, there is monumental prayer happening. This is what happens like with the Lord's prayer as well. As you understand line upon line, praying them over and over, you begin to realize so much is being pulled from the heart when you say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Are you longing for that coming of the kingdom? Do you feel the, the despair of it not being here? Because if you don't, you don't know how to pray your kingdom come. Do you feel the desire to live in accord with the kingdom as Jesus taught it? Because if you don't, you don't, you're not praying his kingdom come. You're just saying words. 
and so forth. Just examples. So Theophan concludes, when these feelings are present, our prayer is prayer. And when they are absent, it is not yet prayer. Like that he said, it's not not prayer. It's just it's not yet. Because remember, the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, and the other written prayer, these are simply tools to bring the heart into the state of prayer. So we want the Psalms to pierce us with feelings. This is why God will allow the arrows of sin to pierce us. Is because as as they do, we realize that those arrows, whoo, but the arrows of prayer being pierced by these pious thoughts for God, this is what the Christian heart, this is what it means to be made music out of. It might feel like we're being beat like a drum, but it's the rhythm of the kingdom and it's going to create something beautiful. So as we go into prayer in the Psalms, what we will find is that the Psalms kill the passions. Remember, the passions are sins that lay hold of us. They get their teeth into us and won't let go. Psalms kill the passions and instill dispassion. They kill the passions and instill dispassion. Mm-hmm. Dispassion is the opposite of passion. Mm-hmm. So let me let me spell this out. They kill the passions. Um, Nicholas Ramos is um, he translated the Septuagint Psalms into English. It's the most it's the newest translation of that. So um, and at the beginning of his Psalter, he wrote these words. And I thought they were just it's two lines and it says everything you need to know about the Psalms. Almost everything. It's a, it's a pretty good place to start, though. He says the Psalter of David casts words like stones, crushing the passions like another Goliath. The Psalter of David casts words like stones, crushing the passions like another Goliath. You want to get a hold of those sins that hold you? Pray the Psalms. Be pierced by prayer and you will not be pierced by sin. But the Psalms also instill dispassion within us. Dispassion is not a lack of feeling or excitement. Obviously not, because we've been talking a lot about feelings. Dispassion is a lack of feeling or excitement for sin. It's that sin comes and tries to disturb us as we are headed toward God, and it has no influence on us. That's what dispassion is. Dispassion is to be in such a state of communion with God that sin doesn't get much attention. It's there, and it's just like an annoying dog that you want to shut up. It's just like, you have nothing. I'm not even lured by this because the glory of this communion with Christ exceeds That's what dispassion is. And the Psalms do both. They kill the passions and instill dispassion within us. I like to see that as being what uh, verses 14 and 15 are getting at. You might remember in verse 11, there's this distance and alienation from people. So then in verse 12, we see that sin is plotting and it's seeking to ruin him and it's planning treachery. But, verse 13, but I am like someone deaf. I do not hear all that ruckus tuning it out like someone mute. I do not open my mouth. You can't evoke a response out of me. I am like one who hears nothing and whose mouth is no defense. 
Perhaps that can be a picture of dispassion for us. So a heart pierced by prayer is unlikely to be pierced by sin. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us. Heal us. Renew us. Strengthen us. And save us. For we know that you are good. We know that you love mankind. And so we turn to you as our only Savior.